0: Hi there. Welcome to the From Lab to Launch podcast by Qualio, where we share inspiring stories from the people on the front lines of life sciences. Tune in and leave inspired to bring your life-saving products to
1: the world. Hello and welcome to From Lab to Launch by Qualio. Glad you're tuning in today. I'm Kelly, your host, and I'm really excited about today's guest. Before we jump in, just a reminder to please rate the show and share it with any of your science nerd friends. We know you have some. Also, check out the show notes if you have a story or a product you'd like to share with us. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Mo Jane, CEO of Sapient. Dr. Jane, or Mo as he prefers to be called, is a physician-scientist with nearly 20 years of experience in physiology, biomedicine, engineering, computational biology, and mass spectrometry-based metabolomics. He started and directed the Jane Laboratory at University of California San Diego for a number of years, and that's actually where Sapient got started as well. You can read the full bio about Mo in the show notes. Sapient is one of the largest capacity biomarker discovery labs in the world and well on its way to transform biomedicine forever. Sapient has multidisciplinary team sponsors and researchers accelerating drug discovery, and transforming therapies with biomarker-guided insights. For all of our science and bio nerds listening in, I'm sure you'll be fascinated by the insights from Mo today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mo. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Kelly. My pleasure to be here and thank you for having us.
1: To get started here, you have such an accomplished background as our listeners can see in the show notes, but tell us briefly what interested you to pursue a career in pharmacology and bioactive metabolites in human disease.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I I think my my background is a reflection of of more severe ADD than anything else (laughs) in that I'm (laughs) searching for what do I wanna do when I grow up? And I've uh, had the distinct pleasure of being able to work in in, in several different areas, both as a a practicing physician, uh, as a professor and a researcher, and and now in industry uh, with Sapient. This career really got started with a fundamental question of, of of wanting to understand why some people stay healthy over the course of their life and, and why other people develop diseases and and being best to help those people. And, and this is why I became a practicing cardiologist uh, in my early life. And as that process evolved, it, it became really clear to me that even for all that we know about human disease, we really understand a very small portion of, of, of a very complex system, which is the human body. And we're really bad at predicting who's going to develop what disease over time. And we're even worse at predicting who's going to actually respond to a given drug. Uh, And the numbers are actually astounding as you go through the actual data, whether it be for clinical trials or real world evidence. And essentially, the best drugs work in about 50% of people, which is, again, a number that's just absolutely appalling to me. Uh, the fact that we're not able to diagnose disease decades in advance uh, when we know these processes take years or decades to actually come to fruition is also just really uh, not acceptable uh, as a civilization, as a way of practicing. And, and, and so it was that desire to want to be able to evolve how we diagnose disease, how we develop drugs, how we distribute and in whom, in whom we use particular drugs. Uh, that gave rise to uh, initially my research program and, and then ultimately Sapient.
1: Yeah, as someone who operates an industry, you know, from a quality perspective, of course, we're always looking at those kind of percentages. And, and I think the greater public really doesn't understand how much your individual biology plays into all of these things, right? And whether, I mean, we all, doctors prescribe us a drug, we expect it to just work. We don't understand why it doesn't. We get frustrated. We blame the company, you know, but whatever, it, like, it's It's crazy to me that people, well, maybe I don't know, maybe we just don't do a good enough job in high school biology,
0: <laughs> yeah, but part of it is an education issue, um, but but part of it is also just how we go about deploying drugs, so yeah. So the way we think about this is that everyone who has a disease is, is diagnosed as a universal grouping of individuals that, as you said, will all receive the same therapeutic for the most part. And right. we know there's huge variations within any disease population, both in how the individual developed that disease and whether or not they're going to respond to a specific therapy. Part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, Kelly, you're a little bit different as a human being than I am. Part right. of it has to do that even if we have the same disease, our diseases are quite different from one another. And so being able to understand how we deeply phenotype disease, particularly at its earliest stages, and then deploy drugs in a way that are targeted to help us uh, sort of target our specific therapies is really the crux of this problem. And this is the goal of personalization of medicine in general. And it's always been a sort of a a wonderful idea and a wonderful concept. And in certain therapeutic areas, particularly in the oncology space, uh, this has really been transformative over the last decade. But medicine as a whole has not very much evolved in, in thousands of years. Arguably, we, we still diagnose disease based upon a certain pathology, and it's a it's a one disease one drug type of relationship, and uh, that that's proven to not be correct.
1: Definitely. Well, and and it's it's fascinating to me too, right? I, my my spouse has a particular fascination with all these microbiome and how that plays into all of this too, but. You know, I think as humans we want we want to have that Here's the single answer and and the whole idea of correlation isn't causation right There's actually a whole lot of factors at play how How do you keep from you know the gene becoming just the magic bullet answer as well
0: yeah it's a, it's a good question I, I mean it depends upon what the underlying objectives are and I'll explain what I mean by that Kelly so Uh, sometimes simple correlation can provide a lot of diagnostic information. And and let me use an example of of the good cholesterol, HDL. There's an abundance of evidence that shows HDL is not actually causal for for protection from heart disease, and it's reading out other factors. But it's still an exceptional diagnostic for telling us who's at risk for developing a a heart disease over time. And and so uh, if you're trying to drug it, it's not a good therapeutic target as the pharmacology world, and as pharmaceuticals will tell you over the last decade, Um, but it still provides a tremendous amount of of diagnostic information. So it's about really understanding what the objectives are, uh, understanding that we're all, again, while we're all equal, we're not identical, and and then trying to understand how our disease processes may be different in a way that allows us to specifically target our, our disease process. Now, I think, again, in the oncology space, biomarkers has proven to be transformative. And the example I always use is when I was in medical school, uh, the way we diagnosed lung cancer or classified lung cancer was based upon its pathology. It was either a non-small cell lung cancer, squamous cell. There was essentially three buckets of what lung cancer looked like. And, and that was based upon what the diagnosis was on a pathologic examination. When you took a piece of that tumor out, you, you put it on a slide, you look at it under a microscope, I can classify it as one of these three groups. And then over time, we realize that there's specific mutations, genetic mutations that occur in various lung cancers, uh, EGFR being the first one that was identified. uh, and, And then subsequently now, when we look at lung cancer, the way we classify lung cancer now, it's one of 40 different diseases based upon the specific mutations. Now, based upon those specific mutations, oncologists today will decide what specific therapy to give an individual. And so lung cancer went from a disease of three individual components to one now that's several dozen different components. And that component classification is exactly what dictates what drug you receive. And, and this is why the efficacy has gone up quite a bit for, for treatment of lung cancer.
1: Wow. That's that's, uh, that's, a, that's an amazing story, too. I mean, of, of a positive outcome, for sure.
0: The question it's is like, now, how do we extend this, though, right? Because this worked really right. cancer. How do we think about this for other non-oncologic diseases?
1: Definitely. And and where I, you know, of course, always as a a founder, right, where do you get the most bang for your buck, but certainly being able to see the applications of that technology across other spaces outside of cancer. Um, so, you know, here, we're talking a bit about your passion for it. But let's talk about Sapient for a minute. So it's a spin out from the lab, you know, there at UCSD, literally from lab to launch, uh, which, you know, we love, of course. Um, But tell us a little bit about Sapient and how you guys are trying to bring that transformative technology to a different therapeutic space.
0: Sure. Happy to. And happy to walk you through sort of this evolution. And so uh, Sapient was founded around this idea that if we can better classify disease using what we call biomarkers in the same way we use genetic biomarkers to classify lung cancer, we can better align a specific individual with their specific disease process, and ultimately understand the specific therapy that's best suited. And again, this is not a theoretical idea. Certainly, there's a tremendous amount of evidence in the clinical literature that when drugs are developed together with a biomarker, whether it be the oncology space or in other therapeutic areas, uh, the approval rates go through the roof uh, on an order of magnitude almost. And so uh, this has certainly been borne out. And, And we were quite interested in the idea that when we observe what happened in the oncology space and how genetics had transformed oncologic understanding and treatment, it was really around not classifying the host, meaning you or I, but rather our disease processes. As I mentioned, being able to understand how a, a tumor may be different from another person's tumor by, by the specific mutations that are located there. And of course, this works well for cancer simply because cancer is read out by genetic sequencing, where you can tell what the molecular drivers are and the specific mutations. And the question is, well, what about those other diseases, heart disease, lung disease, uh, neurodegenerative disorders, liver and GI illness, all those other diseases for which uh, genetics has not proven to provide the same type of information? How do we begin to classify those diseases and better understand them, meaning everything outside of the world of cancer, and even in certain cases in cancer? Uh, And and we became very interested in this technology referred to as mass spectrometry. Now These are pretty big devices. And obviously, given your chemistry background, you're quite familiar. (laughs) These are really amazing devices, bioanalytical devices that allow us to take complex biospecimens that are composed of thousands of, of molecules. And decompose them and measure the actual uh, abundance of each of these molecules that are present in a biological sample. Uh, And and the challenge with mass spectrometry uh, was the same one that was posed to sequencing about 20 years ago, and that it's an incredible technology, incredibly robust, uh, very accurate and precise in its measurements. It's just too dang slow to do on a population scale. Right. And so when we, we launched our laboratory at the University of California, one of our real objectives was to take a mass spectrometer. And simply make it go 100 to 500 times faster than it had ever gone before. And and that's what the objective was. And uh, we we spent many years tinkering and prototyping and and, uh, developing new hardware systems, developing new software systems. Um, And as we were going through that process, we were slowly solving each of these bottlenecks in a way that we were able to continue to accelerate the process as a whole. Uh, And as we were doing this, there was a number of organizations that started coming to us, government organizations, academics, uh, large foundations, the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, uh, large biopharma organizations, where they started asking, can you help work with us in in order to be able to analyze this large population of biological samples uh, that we have from this clinical trial or from this epidemiologic study And we began doing this work. And and as we started doing this, uh, we realized that there was tremendous uh, amount of information, both diagnostic information, prognostic information, as well as uh, drug response information that's encoded in these small molecule biomarkers that are floating around in our blood that could be detected by mass spectrometry. And again, this is not uh, sort of magic. When you think when you go to the doctor, anyone who's gone to a physician for your annual checkup. They draw those two tubes of blood, the purple top tubes. And we typically measure about 15 things in those blood, in those blood samples. And there's tens of thousands of things floating around in your blood. Mm-hmm. So why are we only measuring 15 of them? And, and, and essentially what we are doing here is using these mass spectrometry systems to measure 15,000 things at once in that biological specimen. And the simple answer is that as we measured more things, we were able to learn more things. We could tell who was gonna develop what diseases over time, how people were gonna respond to particular therapeutics, who was going to have a more indolent response to a disease process versus a more precipitous response to a disease process. Um, And as we began to do more and more of this work, it it was clear that, that there was a larger sort of opportunity here to bring high throughput mass spectrometry to drug development. In a way that would, would provide services and aid in, in drug development and discovery uh, across the world uh, for, for many different organizations, whether they be again, academic foundations, governments, uh, biopharma partners, et cetera. And so that's well, the next. Oh, yeah. go ahead. No, go so ahead. that's what gave rise to sapient. And so, uh, yeah, okay. Sapient was, was spun out with that exact idea.
1: Yeah, well my, ne- well, my next question, and I'm just sitting here spinning on this, right? Was you know to talk about technology and its application evolving over the next several years. But as, a, as I'm sitting here thinking, like, uh, as a general public sort of person, I mean, I, I have access to gene testing and those kinds of things, right? Like, I have a family history of breast cancer, so I do that testing every couple of years because it keeps evolving. But I'm like. The general public, can I just send you a vial of my blood and we can get, a, you know, what, what sort of plans do we have? I mean, I know targeting this to drug development is a place to start, but what, what about the benefits to the greater population as a whole? Do you see it evolving that way?
0: Absolutely, Kelly. Uh, fundamentally, what we've built is a tool, uh, and this tool allows us to accumulate a massive amount of underlying data that then allows us to develop new diagnostics. And so there's many phases to Sapient. The first is, as you suggested, just being able to service those that are developing drugs. And and much of our attention in our early years here has been on supporting biopharma organizations with a discovery as a service type of model here, uh, whereby we provide services to them to to analyze their biological specimens, whether they come from preclinical studies or clinical studies, uh, help them make discoveries and return that information to them in a way that allows them to accelerate their drug development. At the same time, through our internal R&D efforts, as you can imagine, we're amassing a tremendous amount of, of, of data. And we have one of the largest human biological data assets in the world at this point, where we've analyzed hundreds of thousands of samples using these mass spectrometry systems now at Sapient. Uh, and that's provide, allowed us to, to develop new diagnostic tests. And, and it's our hope over the next year or two here that we'll begin uh, sort of uh, commercializing some of these tests and making them available to the public.
1: That would be exciting. <laughs> to uh to pivot a little bit um sapiens team spans so many disciplines you've got chemists engineers epidemiologists physicians to name a few um but as the ceo how are you intentionally shaping the culture and efficiency of such a high performing team
0: yeah it, it's a it's an interesting question and um there's many models by which you can build an organization and, and build teams and uh, my uh, essential model has always been you go out and find the absolute smartest, most talented people that are really excited to solve really, really hard problems together as a team, and you put them in a room together, you give them really hard problems, and you give them a lot of food, and you just get out of their way. That's <laughs> really been uh, you know, the, the model that's always worked for me, whether it be on the academic side or, or, or in building Sapient. And so I have to say we've been incredibly fortunate to find just some World world class talents uh, across each of these areas, um, and I essentially view my role as 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 being the glue or the grease. And essentially, uh, when I need to bring people together, it's it's my job to be able to bring those folks together and, and bridge syntax divides and, and communication. And, and and sometimes I have to sort of grease wheels to to make things turn a little bit faster. But honestly, the, the most part is it's it's a train that I'm just holding on to and. Uh, <laughs> It's my job just to help direct occasionally and make some minor tweaks, but we're very fortunate to have just world class people that that do all the hard lifting.
1: That's incredible. I love that story, especially about the food. As a manager yeah, so, of people, I find that to be the critical. universal uh, motivator.
0: <laughs> food and caffeine are critical. Oh, uh,
1: yes, definitely caffeine as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, to talk a little bit about funding, you know, you mentioned, yeah. um, you've raised funding from several sources, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, what advice do you have for other founders, uh, with funding uh, on the mind?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Kelly. And and we took a perhaps non-traditional approach to funding in that, uh, myself and, and my two co-founders initially, uh, when we had launched Sapient, uh, because we were a discovery and a service organization, we des- didn't necessarily need funding up front, uh, we we had clients who were coming to us, like you said, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is public information. We had many other biopharma organizations that were working with us. Uh, and so we had revenue uh, almost from day one. And for that reason, we, dec- we weren't in a position that we required funding. Now, at the same time, we uh, realized quite quickly that the demand out there for our services were, were far greater than we were going to be able to provide given our, our small closet model And um, we we ultimately ended up uh, finding a a funding partner that really worked for us. And uh, the approach we took is that um, we were going to find a partner more than anything else. And in in, in funding, to me, uh, the the dollars that come in are are only one component of it. It's uh, essentially you're marrying your early investors and and you have to be okay with that, good, bad or ugly. Um, and, And we spent a lot of time making sure that we found individuals uh, that were aligned with our larger vision, that complemented many of the weaknesses and, and areas that we did not have strengths in, and that we excited to go along that adventure from beginning. And, and I, I realize that the, the title of this is, is "Lab to Launch," and uh, it's very different having technology and having a successful organization or company. Those are two very different worlds. They
1: are. <laughs> so they are.
0: They and, are. I mean, really. It's almost night and day, and um, those Venn diagrams don't cross very much, and and. Optimizing technology, optimizing discovery, and optimizing companies and, and processes are two very different areas of optimization. And uh, we are very fortunate that we were able to find an investor team that was excited about going through that process with us and walking us along from, from our lab as to how we actually build a successful company.
1: Nice. Nice. Yeah, I've um, spent the last, I don't know, almost 10 years working with startups in the space and i've seen this go well i've seen it not um so it's it is it's it, and i i love your um i love your humility in that because a lot of times what i see is you know the tech side person is the ceo and they just want to hold on to this and they want to control all the things but at some point you scale to a place where you have to let go you have to have a good team and you have to trust them to do their jobs and get out of their way and so i I love I love hearing how well that's going for you guys because I've seen it go well. <laughs> I
0: could not agree more. I mean, uh, in the end, I'm just one cog at a very large wheel, and um, the other cogs have to be able to function; otherwise, the wheel doesn't turn. And, and the investor yeah. team are part of that. Uh, your board is part of that. Your your heads of department are part of that, and, and everyone who works in our organization is a critical cog.
1: Definitely, definitely. Uh, Well, on a bit of a more personal note, if you could go back to the start of your career, what would you tell yourself based on what you know now?
0: Oh, my goodness. That's a that's a book. (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, I I think
1: uh, one of the key
0: lessons I've learned in life is that um, you don't have to sort of know what you want to do next. Uh, and in life, in my career, at least personally, has been really quite an evolution. And and when I was practicing medicine, I was convinced that's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And when I was a professor and, and running a research lab and teaching, I was convinced that's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And I really enjoyed it. And and now here uh, on the uh, commercialization side, uh, running Sapient, I, I'm convinced this is the only thing I ever wanted to do. And I I think I've, I've learned enough that I really have no idea what's going to happen next. And and that's okay. That's part of the evolution of learning. and uh you know, I think folks who are who are bright, who are talented, who are hardworking, there's lots of opportunities uh, and there's lots of things you can do and, and, and not to be scared at the idea of of transitioning. Um,
1: nice. I like
0: that. And well, that's the one thing I would say that I've, I've learned over and over again, that it's going to be OK and, and it's OK to try new things and it's OK to do new things. And uh, you should never let fear be the driving uh, emotion behind any idea or any ounce of effort.
1: I like that. Very true. So uh, I heard this fun question. Um, There was another guest earlier. And so this is a standard one I'm using all the time now. I love it. Uh, But if I walked into Barnes & Noble, (laughs) where would I find you? What section would you be in?
0: Oh, boy. I mean, bookstores are my weakness. And so. uh, (laughs)
1: uh, Same. Same.
0: I I just love the smell of the bookstore when you walk in. Isn't that magical? Uh, I, I don't know why. I don't know if it's the paper or the oil or the ink or what it is, but something about it is magical to me. Um, you know, and I, I suffer, as I think I mentioned early on, uh, from horrible ADD and uh, intellectual ADD. And so I tend to wander and I wander extensively and uh, everything from, you know, I'm just thinking about what's on my bookshelf right now or on my, my side stand that I'm reading everything from, uh, deep science and a book about sort of the genome, uh, to, to a book on regulatory affairs and, and, and drug development. Uh, to a book on on, on management consulting and, and how you organize teams. And so I, I tend to be pretty, um, again, ADD and diverse in, in where I am. Uh, what I will admit, though, and uh, something, again, another lesson that I've learned is that, you know, oftentimes we're, we're quite disparaging of, of, of social media and, and, and learning from alternative sources. And, and there's nothing like holding a book in my hand. So I, I'm certainly a, a firm believer in that. At the same time, there's a tremendous amount of information to be learned uh, from uh, alternative sources, whether it be podcasts such as yours, um, whether it be Twitter and other areas. And, and I'm, I'm continually amazed just how much one can learn when you're exposed to such diverse ideas and opinions uh, and, and thought leaders on, on these different types of social media platforms. And so I'm, I have to admit, uh, a huge fan. I will openly admit i probably learned more in the last year on twitter than just about anywhere else and and there's an incredible amount of information around gap accounting and and how you <laughs> think about sort of a pnl that come from really insightful people and i find a lot of that information is just on twitter and and uh and and so so the simple matter is i'll, I'll be wandering around the bookstore but i'll probably have my phone out at the same time
1: <laughs> yeah same same i uh I've found that LinkedIn has become a bit of a rabbit hole for me, which is not something I ever expected. Generally, I go to those sorts of things to escape my job, right? I want to get out of my head for a little while, but man, same kind of thing as Twitter. And I don't spend as much time there, but LinkedIn too. I have found myself scrolling and then following threads and, and reading people's thoughts and opinions on things. And, and yeah, that for all the, for all the drama. Around it, it certainly is also uh, an interesting way to get to see a bigger perspective on the world than just your own local area or local people that you interact with.
0: That, that's exactly right. I, I couldn't agree more. And 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 you can really connect with thought leaders uh, and people that you know. The the problem with books, obviously, is that um, it takes years to go from inception and writing of a book to publication. And uh, so- social media has taken that and accelerated uh, sort of distribution of information and knowledge and opinions, for better or worse, is arguable, to an <laughs> instantaneous is- time point. And, and that's really interesting to think about.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Well, um, where can folks go to connect with you and follow along uh, with Sapien's Progress?
0: Absolutely, Kelly. So, uh, our our website's probably uh, the best place to go. And and we have a a marketing team here that does a great job of putting together uh, white pages and blogs and publications and other types of information on our website. So, www.sapient.bio. So that's S-A-P-I-E-N-T dot B-I-O. And there's a lot of information uh, on there about what we do. And we're always looking to connect with people who are interested in these types of tools and technologies. Uh, whether they come from biopharma, foundations, disease organizations, um, government or academics, or or even consumers that are interested in particular types of testing.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Mo. It's been a fun conversation.
0: Thank you so much, Kelly. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of From Lab to Launch, brought to you by Qualio. If you like what you've heard, Please subscribe and give the show a positive review. It really helps us out. For more information about Qualio, our guest today, or to be a guest on a future episode, please refer to the show notes.
1: Until next time.